0: Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. When we use the term pioneer in the name of this podcast, we're talking about those who blaze a trail for others to follow and hopefully improve upon. No one fits that description better than today's guest, Jeff Carr. I first met Jeff when he was GC of FMC Technologies, and he was launching the ACES program, what was then novel way of pricing legal services. Jeff is now in what he calls R3 status, recently re-retired. It's really not surprising that someone with a career as varied as Jeff and as many as diverse interests would have a hard time with traditional retirement. But over the years, as he's had several general counsel jobs and had an extensive career as a lawyer, Jeff has been a leading advocate for efficiency and process in legal service delivery. Like so many of our guests, Jeff has had a fascinating path, what he calls a road less traveled, that followed many interests from music to nuclear war theory and now race car driving. Yes, nuclear war theory and race car driving. Listen in to today's conversation to hear how learning that he wouldn't make partner was a cathartic moment, how his wife kept him from joining the JAG Corps, how we use his leverage as GC to demand change from outside counsel. And while you'll never hear him use the word client. Thank you so much for joining. It's been too long since we've caught up. It has indeed. <laughs> How's your re-retirement going?
1: You know, it's I'm 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 better at it this time than I was the first time around. I, I I say that I'm in R3 status, which is recently re-retired. I did an after action on my first failed retirement. I realized what I did wrong. And i've been trying to remediate that since but you know with only partial success
0: <laughs> well we'll come back to that I, i'd like to start by talking about how a uva music major becomes <laughs> a retired uh, general counsel and one of the leading voices for change in the profession it's such a fascinating journey <laughs> you've been <laughs> you've been on
1: it's been a long and winding road and uh and you're right i mean i started um back in the early 70s i started at UVA, I played the piano, and I started out as a music major. And it was in 1976 that I realized that I was okay at playing the piano, but I was never going to make a living at it. And so I just, I, I stopped. And I stopped cold turkey. I haven't touched a keyboard since then.
0: Really? Um, do you miss it? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, now I'm afraid. I'm afraid to go back and, yeah. and um, that, that I can't do what I used to do. So I, 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 from there, I, I went uh, from piano, music, studying nuclear war theory and that's what i
0: sure because that's a typical jump people make
1: typical jump yeah and uh but that's what i was interested in and i wrote a thesis at uva about a a comparison between the soviet and u.s civil defense systems as a component of strategic security you know slightly esoteric subject matter (laughs) area (laughs) lord and you know from there my whole life since then has been a series of taking the road less traveled, I think, more than anything else. I mean, every once in a while, I did what you're supposed to do. I mean, uh, when I ended up going to law school, I I did law review. I clerked for a judge. I did all I clerked in, in law firms. I did all that kind of stuff. I went to a big law firm immediately out of law school, kind of all the things that you're supposed to do. But fairly shortly after that, I'd been at the firm five years. And uh, had one of those conversations that's cathartic, and it was that that I'd never make partner in in that particular law firm, and so I, I left the law at, at that point because I thought I hated the practice of law. And, um,
0: and well, I, let's stop, let's stop for a bit, Jeff, before we talk yeah. about your your next venture. What was yeah. it you thought you hated about the law? Was it was it a reaction to the firm's decision, or was there something about the way in which law was being delivered that informed your?
1: It, it was it was both. You know, I mean, in part, it was my own personal reaction to the practice group's decision that they would not be putting me forward to for for partner because they could only take one person out of the class. It was partially because we had been merged into a New York law firm at that point. And that was that was a very different kind of organization than what I had started in. But it was largely due to the fact that even back then, this was in the 80s, I felt then that. That law was losing its way as a profession, and it was becoming a business masquerading as a profession and not particularly delivering value to its customers, even back then. And so I left, and I started an investment bank, basically, what, a consulting what, group.
0: what practice area were you in when you were, when you were at the <laughs> firm? What, what, Talk, uh, what,
1: what, yeah. Talk about esoteric. I was one of about a hundred people in the world at that point in time that did anti-dumping and anti-subsidy work for a Washington office of a New York law firm. We represented only foreign companies and foreign governments. So most of my work was for foreign governments. And uh, I mean, it, I did customs, I did FCPA and, and uh, countervailing duty work, uh, which was, you know, this narrow area.
0: That is esoteric, Jeff. That is very esoteric. What, what was it that Give me a little more specifics. What were you seeing that was leading you to this belief that law was a business masquerading as a profession? Because you you spent a career trying to think through how... Legal services can be delivered differently and there must have been something in this experience that really you draw on as a backdrop. It
1: started almost as day one for me as a lawyer. One of the first things I did as a baby lawyer, it was before I went into the international trade work, was I did litigation, large case litigation. And part of the firm did maritime financing work. Another part of the firm did what we called the tracks of their deals which was the inevitable litigation that arose out of ship construction contracts. And I spent two months of my life flying from Washington, D.C., every Sunday night to Newport News, Virginia on a little puddle jumper plane with a couple of senior associates, junior associates, and a paralegal team and some admins, going to a bank, warehouse building, and we were delivered boxes of documents to do document review. And my job at that point in time was to identify documents to be copied for use by the litigators later. We had this whole team of people, 12 people, and we were spending 10 hours a day literally looking at documents and putting pieces of green construction paper where we wanted copying to start, red construction paper where we wanted copying to stop. And we could only get 50 boxes a day. Those were the rules of engagement in this particular thing. We were billing the customer travel time. We were billing the customer, you know, 10 hours of work each time, kind of an opportunity cost kind of billing approach, astronomical expenses even back then in in the early 80s. And my job was not to actually read the documents. It wasn't actually to find stuff that was gonna be useful. It was literally to decide what was gonna be copied or not. Next stage of team would be dealing with those things. And I thought this is just boneheaded. This just didn't make sense to me even back then.
0: It's the way the practice was done. I, I, I'm getting shudders as you're describing it because I'd been, been in that room and done that <laughs> <laughs> probably at about the same time you were doing it.
1: And, and I just thought it was crazy. And then various points of time in my career, the similar kinds of things happened where you know, if you could recommend two courses of action to the customer, you would choose the one that maximized the, the, the revenue for the firm. And if they were both equally viable. So it wasn't unethical, but it was unprincipled in, in, in my view. And I just felt that, you know, we were a profession, but we weren't acting that way. We weren't acting as sort of fiduciaries for our customers. And that bothered me. So that's why I left the law. It's why, you know, I thought I'll be an investment banker where ethics and morals don't matter at all. Um, as opposed to the, the, the legal side of things. So I, I did that for a few years. We helped privatize the Brazilian steel industry. We helped privatize some industries in what was then Czechoslovakia. It was a very interesting period of time. But I, during that period of time, I realized that I didn't hate the practice of law. I hated the business of law. You know, having, having been in a business and, and forming a business and trying to build a business, I realized that my first five years was it wasn't this this disdain for practice. Well, was an honorable uh, profession and, and adds tremendous value, but it was the way it was mutating back in the 80s. Frankly, I think that's gotten worse in many ways.
0: Yeah, well, let's put a pin in that and come back to that because I think you're right. So you do an investment bank for four or five years, yep, and you come back in house.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I, I um I did a little solo work for a while as I was as I was exiting this firm that I had formed with with two other partners and uh, thought about going into the the commerce department working in the international trade administration, staying with that kind of countervailing duty anti dumping work that I had done. And decided against that, thought about going into the Navy, you know, at 34 years old, joining the JAG Corps. And my wife, who was a heck of a lot smarter than me, said, you know, Jeff, you have this idiotic fantasy about wearing dress whites and making your family proud since you didn't join the Navy back, you know, when you went to UVA instead. And, uh, you know, you're not going to you're not going to go up to, to Newport, Rhode Island and play around with a bunch of 20, 22 year olds. You're too old for that already. And so I answered an ad in what was then the Legal Times of Washington. A uh, company was looking for a um, international lawyer. And it was one of those things, you read the ad and you say, my God, if I had written the position wanted as opposed to the placement ad, I would have written the same thing and I applied for the job. Didn't hear anything from the company. They ran the ad again about four or five months. I applied again. I sent him a different resume the second time. I sent him a functional resume instead of kind of the traditional lawyer's resume for whatever reason that caught somebody's eye and I I became the international counsel for FMC corporation back in 1993 and I, and I got in house and it was funny. I mean, I found. That in-house practice back then was, it was just like law firm practice, except for we didn't bill ours. It was still very bespoke, very individualized, very, it wasn't very efficient. And because I was a Washington lawyer, you know, I wasn't really a lawyer. I, I knew a lot of people. I knew a lot of regulatory stuff. I knew a lot of stuff about international trade, but I knew nothing about commercial work. And I had to learn that. And so I did what every good Washington lawyer does, or every, whether you're good or bad, you know, you pick up the phone, you call people. And so every time I needed something, that's the way I learned things. And I found you know, like within the company, we had 10 different sales rep agreements, not because that made sense, but because we had 10 different lawyers that had written agreements and they liked their own form. And I just thought, you know, this is boneheaded. You know, because I'm fundamentally lazy, I'd rather leverage other people's work. I believe very much in the Tom Lear song about academic work, where the the tagline is plagiarize, let no one else's work evade your eyes. Um, (laughs) And, um, you know, I just thought that was kind of silly, the the inefficiency, even in-house back then. And so even back then, back in the mid-90s, I was becoming more of an advocate for what I now call processification, what other people call Processification, and uh, you know, I've kind of been on that journey ever since.
0: And at some point, your part of FMC spun off right into a separate Correct. company. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep, the, FMC there were, Technologies. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the internal change process because you were able to use that platform from the outside, seemingly very effectively, to begin right. to change the vendor model and change the way people thought about the practice. What was it about the the culture, the management of this organization that gave you um, working on assumption, I guess, that you had some freedom to set your own boundaries. That's not that typical in companies.
1: I think that's right. And sometimes I forget that, that that other people have internal challenges with with driving change. I was incredibly fortunate. I worked for a couple of general counsels that were very much willing to let me experiment, you know, and, and, and they would have, if it had failed, they would have thrown me out. But I mean, I remember going to one at one point and, and I was the regional counsel for a particular business unit at FMC. But I had no control over either the litigation spend or the IP spend for that particular business unit. And yet the business management is looking at me to control costs and, and deliver value. And I went to the GC and I said, I can't do this job. I mean, I, I, I have no control whatsoever over the primary parts of spend for the business. So I'll tell you what I want to do. Give me control of those things. Let me deal with it the way I want to deal with it, being close to the business. And don't pay me a salary. Just pay me half of what I save. And the GC at the time, he looked at me and he shook his head and he laughed a little bit. And he said, Jeff, HR won't let me do that. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I just can't do that. But I did end up getting control of those areas. And then we started, I started hiring people on my own. We hired firms that we wanted to work with. We changed the way we were doing things. That was in about 98. And we got very, very disciplined about moving to what most people call alternative fees. I just call it, this is the way we do business, moving to firms that got it. We ran, I think in, I think it was 1998, we ran what I believe was the first reverse auction on the internet for legal services. We used a platform called eLaw Forum back then to, to do that, which it really wasn't set up to do, but we kind of leveraged it to do that. And then we just went on this path of being more delivered value focused and more customer focused, less lawyerly. I'm not sure where that all comes from. I mean, it's a combination of a a hundred different things that all sort of came together, but it fundamentally came from a business unit management that they didn't really like lawyers and and they looked at lawyers like the kingdom of no. For whatever reason, the guy that ran this part of the business liked me. He eventually became the CEO of FMC Technologies, asked me to be his GC, but he gave me and the management team gave me the freedom to do things the way I wanted to do them. But they held me accountable. I mean, you know, it was. Fair it was, enough. It was performance based. So that, that's sort of the way I've run my entire career, it was very much driven by what I call principles, rules, and tools. You know, here's what we believe. If we believe this, these are the behaviors we're going to adopt. And then and only then do we start talking about the tools that we're going to use to implement those things. We were always very disciplined about how we did this stuff, but it was all duct tape and bailing wire because we didn't have any money. You know, we couldn't invest in systems, we had to build stuff. We had to leverage other stuff that we found either off the shelf or within the company good example of that is matter management systems we were an early adopter of matter management systems and i remember talking to the vendor and at the time it was serengeti tracker was serengeti was the company and i remember talking to don murray who was the president of the company and i said look don i mean this is nice what you guys have the billing Platform is good and it's nice what you have. But most of the stuff I need to keep track of is is not an external matter. And your platform doesn't have any functionality for internal matters. I said why. So from my perspective as a GC, an internal matter, an external matter, it's the exact same thing. It's just a question of, of who's working on it. But in terms of information flow, I still need the same kind of information about status, performance, things like that he looked at me and he kind of shook his head and he said, well, nobody's ever asked us that before. So we ended up tricking their platform because it wasn't built to do this. And we just set up FMC, the legal team, like an external law firm. And so we could then open matters where FMC Legal was the provider as opposed to SyFarth or something like that. And eventually they got to the point where they were doing internal and external and And we were very, there's a lot in tracker today that reflects input that we and and other customers gave them from the, just from the user standpoint, this is what we're looking for. And like I said, I don't know where it, it comes from it comes from basic business needs. I mean, we just, we need it to be customer focused and that was survival for us. <laughs>
0: yeah, fair enough. Let, let's, let's stick in the late nineties, early two thousands, because this is really, if you think about it, if you go to today, you find lots of folks talking about change and rethinking, and there's a lot of talk we can, we'll, we'll get to whether there's as much action as there is, is talk here in a minute, <laughs> right. but having sort of, been there at the same time you were, I know from personal experience, there wasn't even that much talk about changing the way. So you must have encountered headwinds. You've got a CEO who's giving you the chance to have flexibility and to do things and hold you accountable, which is rare enough, particularly at that time period. Right. But you've got vendors, you've got law firm providers, that are going along their merry way they have to be sitting here thinking who's this crazy guy sure. at fmc technologies how did you begin to change the mindset of both your internal team and your external service providers to reflect what was important to you
1: well the internal team was frankly well, i don't know which was easier the internal team was largely a team that i built on my own i mean i did when we spun off i did inherit some people and some people stayed with FMC Technologies as opposed to FMC Corp. That changed over time. And eventually the team that I had in place was 100% folks that I recruited and mentored and, and hired. But even within that, you know, people are in different places in a spectrum of acceptance on ways of doing things. But we were pretty disciplined in trying to come up with processes within the team so that we were early adopters of decision trees, of process mapping. It wasn't because, in part, it was just because that's what our business used. And so in order to talk to them, that was easier for us to speak their language than to speak ours. On the outside, yeah, there was a lot of resistance, but frankly, it fell into the category for me of look at my face not caring because i very very quickly came to the conclusion as did the people that were on my team that there were a heck of a lot of great providers out there and most of the work of the company was not that the company or particularly sophisticated work it needed to be done well it needed to be done professionally it did not need to be done the way work had traditionally been done and so for us it was simply, we simply got to the point very quickly of saying, look, we're not trying to run your business as a law firm. That, that's up to you. However, if you don't adopt the disciplines that we want, we're not going to work with you. And it was really as simple as that. And we could find providers. Syparth was was one. And Littler was another. We could find providers that did work the way we wanted to work, sometimes grudgingly but they did adopt the disciplines that we wanted to put in place. And whether that was in the way reporting was done, the way billing was done, the engagement system itself, we used performance-based fees. That was kind of a long slog for a while. That was actually harder to get my internal team on board than my external team because, you know, if you're the buyer, you can always find somebody. I mean, you're the customer. And so if you say, we're going to do it this way, you're going to find firms that will say, okay, The bigger resistance was in-house at first, where people would all nod their head and say, yeah, that's a good idea. That's what we're going to do. But in the back of their head is, yeah, but not for my stuff. You know, that, that might work for litigation, but it won't work for deals. That might work for HR, but it won't work for, you know, whatever. And, you know, eventually it just got to the point where I had to be relatively heavy handed about that with my own team about this is what we believe, so therefore this is our rule, and here are the tools. You know, that took a little while, but everybody got on board.
0: Well, lawyers do think they're special, don't they? <laughs> and, and they <laughs> think, no, but it, but it's it's a challenging dynamic you're describing because, yes, that applies to everybody except me because what I do is special.
1: Special and unique. It's the snowflake syndrome, yeah. And, yeah. you know, we're lawyer exceptionalism, whatever you want to call it, I mean, look, it is a great profession, and I think lawyers are uniquely talented in many areas. Their critical thinking capability, their reasoning capability. I mean, it, it is a special, different mindset, but it also then can be stultifying and trying to get people out of that box. What I found is if you could talk first about principles, what do we believe? And if you could get consensus on principles, then you could drive behaviors from that. If we believe X, then we have to do Y and not do Z. And so that you get to this behavior-based culture that becomes very important. And I take litigation as an example. If, if you believe that most litigation for most companies is an economic transaction, it's not a strategic issue, it's an economic transaction. And so your job as the in-house counsel is to keep the number of dollars going out the door as low as possible, as long as there's not some overriding principle involved. That very, very quickly gets you to the point of saying, okay, if you believe that, then one of your rules is, well, figure out which cases you're going to get rid of and which cases you're going to litigate very quickly, because you don't want to keep spending money on cases that you're going to settle anyway. It actually reduces the amount of money that you have to pay to the other side, if that's what you're going to do, or take less if you're the plaintiff. So once you believe that, then that drives you to early case assessment, decision tree analysis, or, or various kinds of tools so you can do that analytical work to decide the fight or flee. And I put our statistics up with anybody. I mean, like most I mean, general statistics are 95% of cases set up. And, you know, our statistics are the same as anybody else's. You know, 93 95% of cases were resolved prior to going to a final finder of fact. Now, the flip side was we had a win ratio of the ones that we actually took to a final finder effect of like 80%. So, you know, we were very disciplined in saying, okay, this one means something for some reason. We're not going to settle this or we can't settle it. So this one, we're going to fight tooth and nail. This one, the vast majority, you know, we just, we need to find a rational way out. And without them getting the reputation that, you know, you you file a lawsuit, you get a check. And and especially in areas like mass tort, employment, you know, you can't let your company get that reputation. You have to make people earn their money the old-fashioned way by, you know, by actually showing a manifestation of injury and some identification of responsibility. Those were the kinds of disciplines that we put in place. And they were incredibly effective. I mean, our, our, our results over the time that I was in the chair were pretty impressive. And when I went to my second company, Univar, part of the reason I came out of retirement was to see, was that just an aberration? You know, what we accomplished at FMC Technologies as, as a team, or were those disciplines that were repeatable? And, you know, I think largely you put systems in place. It took me over a dozen years with a very, very good team to build what we did at FMC Technologies. And we tried to do the same thing at Univar in about three years. And, uh, you know, that that was why I went back to work.
0: So compare and contrast for me, Jeff. So the role of the GC and the role of in-house counsel as it relates to some of the context you're talking about: process orientation, data utilization, technology optimization. From your second stint, your unretirement at Univar, <laughs> versus how you found it when you first became a GC. Do you see a change in mindset in the in the environment that has mattered?
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, the change is not fast enough, or deep enough for somebody like me i mean i think there's still a lot of work to be done but there's a tremendous amount of change i mean you in 2008 when we started the acc value challenge as an example you know there were a ton of people that still believed in the billable hour as a way to do things i think it's hard to find an inside council today that would get up and stand up and publicly say on a panel or in an article or something you know, I think this is the right way to buy legal services, buy the hour and pay by the drink. Now, the fact that they won't say it doesn't mean that they don't do it. it, Right. And so, you know, have we made progress? Yes, we've made progress. The area where we've not made enough progress in my view is in what I call processification. Uh, It's what I call P3, processification, productization and platformization. And that's the recognition that, and you guys at far were pioneers in this area, the recognition that every legal project is simply a set of steps. Some of those steps require a lawyer's judgment, and many, most, do not. And so why do we have very, very high-priced people doing work that doesn't require their really unique and special talents? You can call it disaggregation, but it's really just process mapping and using the right tool for the right job, whether it's inside or outside whether it's a lawyer or non-lawyer, whether it's you know an economist or whoever it may be, it's just right tool, right job. And I don't think we've made enough progress along those lines yet. And I think largely my personal prejudice is that's because the buyers are still lawyers and the sellers are still lawyers. And so we've got members of the same tribe dealing with each other. And on the inside, we talk a lot about our frustration with outside counsel And we talk and talk we do what lawyers are really good at. We talk and talk and talk and we don't really do. And unless and until you get to the point of saying you kind of release yourself from that and and keep your focus on what does the customer need as opposed to what do I as a lawyer want to do? It changes your mindset. That's why you'll never hear me use the word client as an example. I've noticed you
0: use customer throughout.
1: And I mean, unless I'm talking specifically about like attorney client privilege or something like that, I simply don't use the word and I forbade its use within my department because it changes the mindset. If you talk about customers, you start thinking of it like a customer and then you start thinking about, does this need to be done? If I were the customer, would I pay for this? Would I pay this amount for this? Would I do it in the first place? And that takes you down a different decision-making path, I think, than the more traditional role, which is the... In every interesting question of law needs to be answered. Every rabbit hole needs to be explored. You know, all of these, all of these kinds of things. So, you know, I don't know where all that comes from. I mean, it's a it's 100 different influences, I guess, that just have impacted me in one way or another.
0: Yeah, so let's sort of talk about current state of uh, the profession and the, and the need for change. It's certainly different than when you and I started on this journey 20 years ago, there are technology companies focused on the legal space. There's what's referred to as alternative legal service providers, a term I don't particularly like. Uh, There's the legal ops profession that continues to grow and evolve. There's the big four continuing to. Do you have any optimism that these other sources of Mindsets of changes are going to speed up some of the change both of us think ought to be happening in the profession? Or do you see it just as different versions of the same dynamic, this tribal relationship?
1: If we stay on this tribal relationship path, then the legal function within companies and within society, in my view, will become increasingly irrelevant. It'll be constricted more and more to only those areas where customers have to access. And so I think for our own self-preservation as a profession, we need to think more broadly. That's really hard to do. I mean, you know, it's because it's our own egos, it's our own narcissism, it's our own backgrounds that kind of drive us to think the way we do. So on the one hand, yes, I see a great deal of promise, but no, I mean, if a, a law company, an alternative legal service provider or a big four Does work precisely the same way that a law firm would, but only in a different cost structure. Have we really moved the needle? And I mean, I'm all in favor of reducing costs. And I remember talking to one of the founders of one of the original ALSPs right when they were founded and and they came to me and they said jeff i mean you know you talk about reduced cost and whatnot and i talked to them about well yeah i get your model i mean you've taken out basically the third of infrastructure cost and probably most of the partnership distribution so you've reduced the cost significantly but you're still doing work exactly the same way you're still doing work basically you know bespoke one lawyer doing work, you know, they're, they're working virtually now or offsite, or part-time or whatever. So the cost structure is different, but the workflow is not. And there's not been enough focus in my view of looking at workflow. And, and I think, you know, what Cypher did and is doing and was doing is an incredibly interesting case study in that. Um, you had tremendous success, also resistance within the firm. I don't have my finger on the pulse now anymore. I'm not, I'm not in the game. So I don't know, has there been backsliding? Has, or has there been movement forward? Is it isolated to certain areas? So, I mean, I think, I think you guys are a microcosm of the industry as a whole, where you've got pockets that have done great work. You probably have some pockets of resistance. The question is, okay, do they coexist? Yes, no, maybe. You know, how do you make those changes? And I think that's the way lawland is generally. And whether it's, take the big four, Tremendous debate here in the U.S. about entry of the big four and and risk associated with that. My sense is they're not going to challenge big law in the areas of predominance of big law, like litigation, IP, and deal work. That's probably a smart strategy. The real risk Is I think is if the big four and or law companies come to the realization that they don't need to challenge big law in those areas. What they should focus on is the general operational part of the business to say, you know, how can we help our companies run better? How can we help them be better citizens, better, more responsible entities? Because if you can do that, you can reduce the demand side on those other two big buckets of spend. I don't know if they'll do that because frankly, most of the people they're hiring are lawyers who think like lawyers. And so, you know, I don't know. That'll be
0: interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic. I know we're running out of time, but let me stay on this point for just a second. Because if you look at the big four, that is kind of how they built their consulting practices, multidisciplinary approach, figure out the operational side, start at the basic business as usual piece and building up from there. And you would think, that they would try to replicate that success because they've been very right. successful in consulting, but doing it with lawyers is a whole different, right? Whole different right. bag.
1: If somebody from the big four or, or a law company came to me and said, "Hey, Jeff, would you like you know you want to help us build this?" It's Sure, as long as you want to look at it a completely different way, and you know if you want to look at it as productized services where leverage means what it means in the real world as a, as opposed to lawland. You know, leverage in lawland means the pyramid that you that you're responsible for from the billing standpoint leverage in the real world is the exact opposite of that it's efficiency from your productive assets both physical and human to and and technical in order to be more efficient and effective in what you're doing and you know right now law land is not there you know at least in, in my view pockets are pockets will get there I mean look at what's happened in real estate look at what's, what's even deal work I mean you know, largely deal work these days. I don't know why we still have several hundred page documents other than, than you know, that's what we do. But, you know, it's very kind of commoditized now at, at, at this point. It gets truly really sophisticated sometimes. And that's great. And that's when you need the bespoke service, but you don't need that for everything that you do. And, and we're just not there yet as an industry. And frankly, I think it's because And I used to think about this, I used to think, don't go talk to the GCs. You should talk to CEOs and CFOs, uh, you know, about different ways of doing things. But the dirty little secret is that the cost of legal in any company, you know, the difference between the best run legal department and the worst run legal department is like half a percent of sales. And so it just doesn't move the needle. It's hard to get the attention. It's millions of dollars, but it's, it's hard to get people to take risk in areas they don't understand when it really doesn't move the needle enough. That's
0: right. What, what do you think the industry has learned from operating through a pandemic? I mean, most of these crises have short-term accelerants for change that's already in the works, for, but sure. they tend, they have, I think of a weight, that accelerant tended to die out after a while. Is this I, one different?
1: I think it is. I mean, I, th- I think that the myth of where one works has been completely exploded. And now, does that mean we won't return to offices? No. It, it, it just doesn't mean that we have to be in offices the way that we were. The myth of one-to-one meetings all the time, getting on a plane has been exploded. And the rapid adoption, because we were forced to do so, online collaboration platforms like Zoom, like Jamboard, like you know, Google Docs, a whole series of teams, a whole series of things. These are tools that they've existed for years, but they haven't been used much in lawland. There's this forced adoption of that. And I don't my sense is... We're not going to go back to the way it was. What we haven't done, though, is yet really looked at processifying what we do. And so my fear, concern, fear, whatever you want to call it, is that we've learned a lesson, but we haven't learned enough of a lesson. You know, we'll declare victory because half of our workforce doesn't have to come to the office. But we, and that's like the old ALSB conversation I had. Great, you know, you've reduced cost you've enhanced your employee satisfaction, but you haven't changed fundamentally how you work. You've only changed kind of where you work. You haven't really changed what you do and how you do it. And you haven't really addressed why. why are we doing this in the first place? And, and that's why I go back to, you know the bizarre thing about at least the US legal system is it's entirely built on the existence of disputes. When We come right down to it. I mean, it, it largely is built on, we learn about future behavior from past cases. We learn that everything is unique. We learn that you have to you know, take the answer, get the answer from the court or a tribunal. We should flip that around completely and say, why don't we build processes that are better? Why don't we focus on making sure we don't have problems as opposed to optimally dealing with them when they arise? You got to do the optimization. But unless and until we also adopt prevention as a fundamental aspect of legal service, we're really not doing a complete job for the customer, in, in my
0: view. You're absolutely right. And I we're out of time, so Jeff, so we need to wrap up. But I can't tell you how much uh, I've appreciated you catching up and talking about what, what has been a fabulous career. And are you re-retired for good this time, or are you… Uh...
1: You know, I'm, I'm doing some stuff. I'm doing a little bit of teaching and mentoring. I keep toying with doing some writing. When you're retired, you go to I3 Retired, which is invisible, insignificant, and irrelevant. And, you know, people like me, we fight that. And it's because of our egos. It's because of the connectedness. I mean, you know, I passionately believe that law is a great profession. I passionately believe that it's important as an input to a real society. The rule of law is incredibly important. I equally passionately believe that the way that our guild has organized itself threatens its own existence. And so if we don't change, we're not going to like what we end up with. And so, you know, at least for me, I like to try to stay involved in that game. What that looks like, how that'll work out for me and for others, I don't know. But that is what, you know, I do five things every day. One of those things is something mental. Another is something creative. And a third is something social. And these kinds of conversations are things that help me tick that box off each day. And yeah, I, I keep a list. I even do an after action at the end of the day to assess, you know, okay, of the five things I am supposed to do today, did I, did I actually do all of them? And what do I need to do tomorrow to do better? So that's just the way I'm wired.
0: Continuous improvement. I love it. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for joining. And, thank you, uh, you, Enjoy your race cars.
1: <laughs> Thanks. I do with okay. those. <laughs> I know you
0: do. <laughs> Great to talk to you. Good to talk to you, too. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.